The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Church family, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, find your place in 1 John chapter 3. And this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, and I'm speaking on the subject, Hope for a Broken World. Hope for a Broken World. And we've heard about this theme already through song and worship this morning. In our text before us, John writes to a first century audience in Asia Minor to remind them of the hope they have in Christ. His readers, the original recipients of this letter, needed such a reminder considering the way in which their church had been invaded by false teachers who were causing a lot of confusion, a lot of division, and a lot of hurt within the church. Because of this false teaching we now know as the Gnostic heresy, there was flagrant immorality and sin in the church, 1 John 1 and 2.16. There was a lot of hurtful interpersonal conflict in the church, 1 John 2, 7 through 11. And many were actually quitting on the public gathering of worship, 1 John 2.19. And so in the midst of so many problems and in the midst of so much relational tension, John wrote this letter and he wanted to remind his readers of the hope they had in Christ. And his words stand as a reminder of us, a reminder for us. The believers of all generations always need to remember this word called hope. It's often a neglected Christian virtue, but we learn from 1 Corinthians 13, 13 that it's one of the three most important Christian virtues. There Paul said, now remain these three, faith, hope, and love. Now, perhaps... Some of our forgetfulness concerning Christian hope comes with all of the baggage this word has in our 21st century society. Hope many times isn't a real positive word. In fact, when we use the word hope, we often use it to speak of something that has a little bit of doubt accompanying it. Uh, For example, we may look at the weather and say, boy, I hope it doesn't rain. Doesn't sound too convincing, does it? Hope is often used as to express a desire that has a degree of doubt mixed in with it. Maybe if a friend of yours isn't returning phone calls or responding to text messages, you might say, I hope he or she isn't mad at me. I remember when I was in college in Pensacola, Florida, my brother came down and went to the same school with me for one semester. I think he really did it mostly for the beach. We would travel uh, to the beach on the weekends. If you've ever been to Pensacola, Florida, there's a couple bridges you've got to go over to get to the beach. And that last bridge has a toll. When I was in college, I don't know what it is now, but it was a $1 toll. My brother had this strategy. He would uh, look for cars full of other college students and preferably definitely he was looking for college girls as we went over the bridge and he would strategically get in front of them in his car we had a little 
Ford Mustang convertible and he would stay in front of them and as we went through the toll, he would pay their toll. That would get their attention. These guys in the car in front of you have paid your toll. And then my brother might say, boy, I hope when we get to the beach, they'll talk to us. Hope, it's often a word used to express a desire with a degree of doubt. Now, I want you to know this, the Bible word for hope is different. It has strong connotations of confidence and assurance. One has given a definition to the first century Greek word translated hope by saying it refers to a confident expectation in a divinely promised future. A confident expectation in a divinely promised future. So this isn't just a thing of mere desire. This isn't a thing that contains any doubt. Biblical hope, hear the word of God. It's all about confidence and assurance and who God is and in what Jesus has done through the cross. Now it's important for us to grasp this concept. We need hope for a broken world, don't we? We're all dealing with the fallout from the Garden of Eden. We all experience both emotional and physical pain in life. We will, like John's readers, encounter great relational difficulties. And we need biblical hope. If we don't understand this biblical theme, we'll be tempted to give up spiritually when we face tough circumstances. Perhaps as life goes on, we'll become spiritually dull and lethargic if we don't keep our eyes on biblical hope. And if we aren't ever mindful of our future in Christ, we won't be real good witnesses. The Lord won't be able to use us as change agents in a dark world. We need to understand how we have biblical hope, how we have hope for a broken world question we have is what's involved in this hope? And I believe in our text we see three truths that provide hope for a broken world. Follow along with me and grasp the meaning of biblical hope. First of all, John reminds his readers that we will all face friction in life. We will face friction. Now, it's important if you want to understand biblical hope that you don't have rose-tinted glasses, that you don't have unrealistic expectations in life. To really get the full measure of biblical hope, you have to see it against the backdrop of brokenness. You have to settle it in your mind that the world has been marred and marked by sin. Things aren't the way they ought to be, and in life we will face friction. John reminds his readers of this in verse 1. He says, See what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children, and we are. We looked at that part of the verse last week. Then in the second part of the verse, he says, The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Now, it may seem that John's a little bit herky-jerky here, that he's changing gears in a rough fashion. He goes from talking about how we're God's children, then he seemingly out of nowhere says the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Excuse me, John? 
Seems like he's coming from left field. What does that have to do with what you just said? Well, it seems that John is reminding his readers, the true believers amongst the church, that it was their identity in Christ as God's children that was leading them to have friction with others. The reason the Gnostic heretics, the reason unsaved loved ones were hostile sometimes to the true believers was tied to the believer's identity in Christ. See, John wanted his readers to know that the reason for the resistance they faced rested in their identity as God's children. He wants his readers here to know that real Christians, people who are truly born again, people who live the Christian life in word and in action, will face resistance, friction, blowback, and even threats at times from non-Christians. And the reason for this all rested in the fact, here John says, that unbelievable, unbelieving people don't know Jesus. He uses this word know. And he accuses the Gnostics of not knowing Jesus. Now, this was a tall accusation. And John here's got his tongue in cheek a little bit. You see, the Gnostics use the very Greek word here, translated no, as the label for their entire system of thought. They were the Gnostics, Greek word for knowledge in the first century world. So John actually turns their moniker, their title for themselves upon its head and he applies it to them to say this, hey, they boast of having special secret knowledge. They claim they have a knowledge you don't have. They're known as the knowledgeable people, but guess what? They know nothing because they don't know Jesus. They don't know him. See what John's doing here. He's reminding believers, hey, you will face friction in life from people who don't know the Lord. Deal with it. Accept it. Embrace it. Understand that this is your lot in life as a Christian. This word translated no is often used in the New Testament as a synonym for salvation. 1 Timothy 2.4 is an example of that. John here uses the word to point out the entire problem in this first century church. The Gnostic teachers had never been born again. And considering this reality, his readers should not have been surprised about the division in their church. John wanted them to know that light has no fellowship with darkness. The things of the world don't mix with the things of the Lord. Jesus himself had taught on this, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. He said, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Jesus told us, anticipate resistance. And in John 15, 18, he said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Now, this is important teaching. If we want to live in hope, if we want to live in hope, we have to understand this biblical teaching. 
Believers will never be spiritually strong. You, sir, ma'am, will never be strong in Jesus if you don't accept the fact that resistance is going to come your way from a non-Christian world. For you to have the joy of Jesus living in your heart, you have to come to grips with the fact that the world never has been, nor will it ever be a friend of the church. Troubles will come our way because of our status, our alien status in Christ. 1 Peter 2.11. In John's gospel, John taught about how the darkness hates the light because the light exposes the darkness for what it is. John 3.19. And if we don't accept this reality, we'll likely become dissatisfied, disillusioned, and discouraged in the faith. You see, too many Christians never live the life God has for them because they're too worried about the world and what the world thinks. They live by the fear of man, not the fear of God. They live with an eye on the opinions of others and not on the hope of Christ. Many Christians live continually with nagging fears like, what will my coworkers think? If I don't laugh at that crude joke, if I don't engage in the gossip and slander around the coffee pot, others think, what will my neighbors think if I witness to them? Or others may think, I don't want to stick out and be strange. Get this, we can't look to the world for acceptance. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. If we want to live with hope in this broken world, we have to always be mindful that our security, our significance, our strength in life comes from Christ. When we have this type of strong stance in the gospel, we'll be well equipped to love the same world that despises us. And we'll be well equipped to live with an ever-present hope. So know this, we will face friction. How do you live with hope in a broken world? Just accept that there will be friction. But number two, and grasp this truth, change is coming. Change is coming. First John chapter 3, verse number 2, John says, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, John's words here refer to the second coming of Jesus. He uses this word translated appears. It was used back in verse 28 to speak of Christ's first coming. Here it refers to Christ's second coming. And here, John speaks of an event we know of as glorification. Everybody say that word, glorification. One has defined glorification as the final dimension of Christian salvation, which includes eternal life in heaven and the eternal glorifying of God, worshiping him forever. 
I remember being taught at a young spiritual age this reality. There are three phases to your spiritual salvation. First of all, there is justification. May seem like a big word, but it's a good word. It means that the moment you are saved, when you call out to God and place your faith in Jesus as the God-man who lived and died for your sins, at that very moment when you call upon him, you are justified. That is, God declares you not guilty of sin, and he removes the stain of sin from your life. He declares you as being completely innocent, as righteous as his son. When he looks at you, it is just as if you have never sinned. You are 100% righteous and innocent in the eyes of God. Justification, number one. But then number two, throughout your life as a Christian here on earth, you've got to pursue what we call sanctification. That is gradually incrementally, progressively being set apart for God's holy usage. That is gradually through a growth process, becoming more and more like Jesus, dying to old habits and hangups and becoming more and more practically righteous. Justification, sanctification. But the third phase is this, glorification. That is the moment when Christ returns at the culmination of all things, the Lord will tr change you in the twinkling of an eye. He will give you a new body. You will be transformed. Your body will no longer have the capacity to sin or die. You will be made into the image of Christ. This involves a reversal of all of the consequences of original sin and a return to the full image of God within man. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8.30. There he said, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now I love that verse because it tells us that glorification is promised to all who have been justified. In other words, the moment you were justified, you were as good as glorified. The Lord has promised to one day change you and to make you perfect. Paul also spoke of this doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. And here John speaks of it by saying that glorification will become like Jesus, like him. Now, that doesn't mean, as some of the cults report, that we somehow, through divine progression, achieve a godhood status. That's false. Realize here, John uses what we call a simile. You remember similes, or did you forget that one, right when you graduated school? A simile is when you use like or as for comparison. And here John says we will become like our Lord. We believe that means that's a comparison to say we will be without sin and we'll have the ability to live forever. We believe it also reminds us that we will receive a resurrection body similar to the one Jesus had after he was raised. Get this great meaning here, though. Change is coming. Why can you have hope in this broken world? You know that there is a future renovation. There's going to be an extreme makeover, you edition. The Bible teaches that God shares a degree of his glory with all of us, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, as believers. But at the moment of glorification, we will receive a new, heightened, unspeakable degree of this glory, 1 Corinthians 
13, 12. Change is coming. Now, when I think of this concept, my mind gets a little bit worldly, I'll have to admit, and I immediately think of a TV commercial, one of my favorites, that contains a change. Watch this commercial. Mike, you're playing like Betty White out there. Baby! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, Eat a Snickers. Better? Better. Hey! I'm up bet! That hurt. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfied. So Betty White eats the Snickers and is changed. It won't be a Snickers bar that changes you, but get this, at the return of Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, we will all be changed. Sin will be done away with. Our bodies will be transformed. We'll be forever in the presence of God. And John's words were meant to enliven and energize his original readers. These words can have a similar effect upon us. You see, the truth of glorification is a ray of hope that shines upon believers during all seasons of life. When pain wreaks havoc on your physical body, in your mind, you can have this hope, not doubt, desire with a degree of doubt. No, you can have this promise that one day, pain will no longer plague your body and you'll get a new body. When you're overwhelmed sometimes with your own failures in life, how you've blown it, when you wish you could go back in the past and have a do-over, get this, change is coming. And you don't have to be bound in life by your own finiteness and imperfection. When you in life feel overwhelmed by, by grief and you wish the world wasn't the way it is and you wish it could just all change and you wish you could go back in the past, know this, there is a future coming with glorious reunions with our loved ones. When you feel lonely, out of place, or homesick in life, when you feel like the town you live in, the family you're in, the workplace you're in doesn't just fit you or suit you. Know this, you weren't made for this world and you've got a new home coming. Change is coming. And John wanted his readers to hear this because many were bailing on the church. Many were hurt and broken. He wanted them to know you can have hope for a broken world. You're going to face friction. Change is coming. And then know this lastly, as believers were called to represent. We're called to represent. After elaborating on the doctrine of glorification, John speaks of the proper practical response we should have to it. In verse number three, he says this, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Notice his emphasis on this idea of purity. He tells his readers, hey, in light of who you'll one day be in Jesus, 
You should purify yourself. He uses a word here that's used throughout the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to speak of cleansing under the Mosaic or Levitical law. Numbers 8.21 gives one example. In our current passage, John uses it to speak of the practical, real-world, daily-life cleansing on the outside of sins that are visible to others and that hurt others. He wants here people hearing him in the church to pursue purification that involves consecration or devotion to the Lord. We see a reminder that the Lord didn't just save us to keep us how we are. Sure, there is a future transformation, but in the here and now, we are to pursue transformation as well. When you became a believer, the Lord began a good work in you, and he wants to complete it until the day of redemption. You shouldn't be who you were a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago as a Christian. A year from now, you ought to be different. You ought to have this as the theme of your life. He's still working on me to make me into all that he wants me to be. Now, the necessity of such moral cleanliness may seem like a no-brainer for many, but we've got to remember the situation amongst John's original readership. There was a false teaching in the church that gave license to sin, 1 John 1, 8 and verse 10. There were leaders, supposed leaders and teachers in the church sanctioning and allowing all types of gross and wicked and depraved types of immorality. And as a result, John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking with authority from the Holy Spirit, reminds his readers that they ought to be pursuing holiness because of all of the promises they had in Jesus. The New Testament often encourages such practical righteousness. 1 Peter 1.16 says, It's written, Be holy because I am holy. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we know we will never attain perfection until glorification, but we should always be aspiring after it. Now, the question for many believers revolves around why. I can remember as college-age student desiring to follow Jesus, seriously struggling with this question. Why? If the Lord loves me, if he has saved me, if I'm guaranteed a home in heaven, why should I fight against sin in my life? Most know that moral and spiritual purity are important, but many are unaware of why the Lord actually wants them to fight for it and pursue it. Now, John gives us a clue in our text, I believe, making a reference to Christ. He says, Believers, He says that you and me, he says that his original readers should seek to be pure. Listen to what he says, quote, just as he is pure. I believe that phrase has a clue for us. See, it shows us here that when our lives are changed, when we grow more into the image of Jesus, our new lifestyle gives a brilliant testimony for Jesus. 
John here shows us why we should fight against bad attitudes, why we should watch the words that come out of our mouth, why we should be on guard against what we consume through media, why we should strenuously labor to control our time, our actions, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our behaviors. John's showing us why we should pursue purity. Because the Lord has made things this way. The Lord in his divine designs wants us to be little Christ within our circle of influence. He wants us to be pure as he is pure so that others can see a change in us. Remember this great axiom, you will be the only Bible that some people ever read. You will be the only interaction some folks ever have with Jesus. So as Paul would say in one place, make sure your words are always seasoned with salt. Make sure you have a lifestyle that gives honor and glory to Jesus. So sad in our 21st century American culture, many immature believers like to wrangle and wrestle and fight over words. It seems that so many are engrossed in social media and through blogs and writing and through personal debates over endless arguments concerning lifestyle choices, moral activities. And so many in our society can find all types of excuses for more immoral living Addiction, bad attitudes, bad language, misplaced priorities, and low devotion to Christ and Christian stewardship and service. But contrary to this type of lifestyle, where we think, well, what's best for me? And is there anything really wrong with it? We should instead be asking, what's really right with it? And what does it do for the reputation of Jesus in my family and in my neighborhood and in my church and in my community? We should really go back to that old question, what would Jesus do? By holding every belief, behavior, attitude, action, priority, and passion up against the blueprint of his life, we'll have a a good barometer for how we should really live. Remember, this is the Lord's standard. He wants us to be like Jesus. Go back to what Paul talked about in Romans 8 about our hope. He said, for those, he also Foreknew, he also predestined. Why? What's the purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son. So this is what our hope's all about. We're going to have friction in this world. But change is coming. And in the meantime, the Lord desires for us to shine his image. Jesus taught on this. He said, in the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So as we live with hope, we know that there's an end game here. The glory of King Jesus. Worship for him. And so... We have an ability then to accept the friction we're going to face in this world. We we have hope because change is coming. And we know in the meantime, it is our business to represent Jesus. So we wage war on selfishness and sin. 
We wage war on our own faults and failures. We worship and we walk with the Lord and we strive against sin. Why? All because of hope. All because of the hereafter. All because we want to worship Jesus and we want one day in the new heaven and new earth there to be more worshipers at his feet. This is our purpose in the here and now to live as lights for Jesus so that there might be more in the hereafter. Hope for a broken world. I'll never forget when Laura and I were getting engaged, I went to get her ring. I I drove over from Marietta over to Smyrna. Her mother had actually given me a recommendation for a guy from whom I could buy a ring. I still remember going into that jewelry store and I'd finally saved up the money for her ring. And I had that money in my checking account and had a check ready to write it. And I remember standing on the other side of this real simple jewelry store telling the man what I wanted and he said, well, we've got some options. And he pulled out different rocks. And then he had a little black tray. It was small but black, kind of velvety, nice fabric. And then he took one of those rings and he took a diamond. I don't have a ring with me this morning. I've just got a rubber band that was on my ring finger. And he placed it on that black, that black cloth. And, and it looked pretty before he placed it on that black cloth, but my how it shined once it was on that cloth. And he talked to me about what makes a diamond valuable and nice. He talked to me about clarity and cut and size. I ended up selecting a diamond for Laura's ring. But but get this, the, the diamond looked so radiant against that black backdrop. And get the meaning of John's words here. Get what he's trying to communicate to his readers. Hey, we do live in a broken world. It may seem like at work, at home, out and about in the community and what we see on the news, things are bad and it's just one big black backdrop. But guess what? It is against the black backdrop of society that the glorious gospel And change lives shine the brightest. So church, let's get out there in the midst of this world and know that we've got hope for a broken world. We may face friction, but we know change is coming and we've been called now to represent King Jesus. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.